Between my sophomore and junior year in high school, I finally grew into my extremely lanky body, and I finally started to be able to dunk a basketball. My credit card vertical turned into a multiple phone book vertical, and I was able to dunk. My summer league coach was so excited that he wanted to get me a chance to dunk in every game that we played in, but the problem was, was I needed some time to gather myself, and I wasn't very good, so I couldn't really do it in the midst of the game. I had to have room. But he wanted me to dunk, so he began to use a trick play to get me a chance to dunk at halftime. Now, you have to know the rules of basketball to understand how it worked, so I'm going to use this diagram here for those of you that don't know basketball. I'm going to get back into my uh, coaching skills a little bit here, and we're going to do some X's and O's. You guys ready for this? This is amazing, right? All the men are suddenly tuned in after having been gone for months, right? All right. The play was based on the fact that we as humans don't pay attention to who we are following or where we end up. We often follow without thinking. Just think for a moment the last time you went to the airport or the last time you went to an amusement park. Uh, we were just on, in an airport recently and um, in, in the big uh, cattle call lines, right, for TSA. I walked up and stopped, and, and I'm looking, and the guy right in front of me, he's dead stopped in the middle of the cattle call. And I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at all the open things, and I finally said to him, I'm like, hey, buddy, like, go, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. And he had just randomly stopped in the middle of the cattle call. You can think about this as we think about the idea of following. We, we end up in odd places when we don't know who we're following or where we're going. So you see, for those of you who don't know basketball well, each basketball game is broken up into two halves. Okay? And after the break at halftime, you are supposed to switch baskets that your team is shooting on. So if you shot on hoop one in the first half, you would be shooting on hoop two in the second half. But in summer league, everyone is a bit more casual and not paying as much attention. Now, if you had the ball in the second half, if you were getting it at the beginning of the second half, you would get it out of bounds at the half court line, and you would need to pass it in. Everybody with me so far? Yeah? Okay. So if we shot at hoop one in the first half, which hoop were we supposed to shoot at in the second half? Three. Two. Okay, you guys are in. This is, this is the most participation I've gotten in a long time, man. All right. So if we shot there at hoop one, we're going to shoot at hoop two in the second half. So we should have gone and gotten set up at hoop two. But the key to the trick play was that before the other team came on the floor, you would go to the hoop you shot at in the first half, hoop number one, and you'd line up like you were on offense as if you were going to shoot on that hoop. Now, because the defensive team wasn't paying attention, they would come over to you and line up next to you on defense. Now, remember, where are we shooting at for the second half? Two, right, okay? So the referee would blow his whistle, and rather than uh, our player passing it in to us at hoop one, I would start walking towards hoop two, leaving my defender behind. They would pass the ball to me, and the other team thinking I was going into the back court, I would grab it, and I would saunter up to hoop two, and I would dunk it, <laughs> taking all the time in the world. <laughs> Meanwhile, the referees, my team, and my coach were on the floor rolling. The other team's coach and the other team's players stood dumbfounded as to how the enemy just got a free dunk. It was the best thing in the whole world. Now, unfortunately, word of this trick play circulated our league quickly, and after about five games, the other teams got wise to us. They figured out that it matters who you follow. 
Rather than blindly following us out on the court, they needed to pay attention to where they were going and who they were following and what their purpose was. We innately know this, don't we? We know that it matters who you follow. Would you guys agree? And yet the world, and I would argue most evangelicals, will still blindly follow people who are leading them in the wrong direction. Just really quickly, for a little bit of conviction, you could bust open your phones right now and look at your Instagram feeds and Facebook feeds. Who are you following? Who is putting info in your brain? Take the most current situation of evangelicals flocking to an influencer regardless of where they will end up if they follow him. How many of you are familiar with Kanye West? Raise your hand, nice and high. Now, I hate that I have to even bring this up, but it is all over the place. And as a pastor and shepherd of a flock, I have to bring it up because if I don't, I will be remiss. Now, if you're not familiar with him, good. No, he's actually a very good artist. Uh, He's a musical artist that recently professed he is a Christian and has started having spontaneous worship services throughout the country and advertising them via social media. The evangelical Twitter sphere and Instagram world is abuzz with Christians debating back and forth, is he saved? Is he not? Is this revival? Is this the tribulation? Right? (laughs) Nobody knows. Now, I am not going to enter into that debate because here's the honest answer. Is Kanye West saved? I don't know. Right? Who knows? Jesus does. As Christians, we're to look at the fruit of a person's life, aren't we? And right now, he is proclaiming to follow Christ. He has put out a documentary and an album titled Jesus is King. I like that. And so evangelical after evangelical says, well, that's enough. Let's flock to him, lift him up as being moved by the Spirit of God, and say it's revival. Is that a wise move? No, it's not. Now, why do I bring this up if I'm not going to debate whether or not he's a Christian? Because what we should be doing as mature believers when asked if he is a believer is to say, I don't know. Only time will tell, and I will be praying for him. And then we compare his actions and his theology with Scripture, which, if you're paying attention, there's a pretty bad imbalance right now. Now, if over the course of time he is in line, he kind of falls away and moves away from the prosperity gospel that he is kind of going towards right now, we rejoice and give glory to God. And if not, then we pray that he will submit himself under good Christian leadership that can help him truly follow Christ. Amen? That's the answer to the Kanye West issue. Unfortunately, though, as a whole, the evangelical base is not moving with caution and maturity. It's doing what evangelicalism has done for many years. Hey, the popular kid has proclaimed that they want to follow Christ. And so, rather than discipline them and disciple them quietly, lovingly towards maturity, we grab them, Voice them on stage as the Christian golden child, and undoubtedly people start to follow. Then when they burn out a short time later or start preaching heresy, they take with them all those who we have said should follow them. Rather than mature endurance in following the advice of the Apostle Paul to take our time in putting people in a position of leadership, we grab at the most charismatic, the best speaker, the best musician, and tell everyone, hey, follow them. And it's done incredible harm to the cause of Christ because it matters who you follow. 
How many charismatic preachers have started huge followings, huge churches, but then without training, mentorship, and loving accountability, they've burned out, causing great harm? How many worship bands who are amazing artists, but who have no theological training or oversight, are lifted up as leaders of theology? Their music is unconsciously internalized by hundreds of thousands of followers. And then the church wonders why bad theology and biblical illiteracy is rampant in the church. It matters who you follow. This morning, we're looking at the call of Christ to the first apostles to follow him and to become his disciples. And we're going to look at their response. And in observing these two sections of Scripture, my prayer for us as a church is that we will gain clarity in what it is to be a disciple of Jesus so that when the world throws us false understandings of Jesus and what his disciples are to look like, we can stand firm in what we know to be the truth. And in the midst of this, my hope is that we can gain conviction on what might need to be adjusted in our own lives so that we can follow Christ more closely. Now, before we dive into the points, you might ask, why do we have two sections of Scripture today? Aren't we going chapter by chapter, verse by verse? Well, in actuality, we are being far more true to this text than if we only did verses 16 through 20. Remember that the gospel, according to Mark, was circulated as a gospel to be read out loud from front to back within the churches. And so rather than a very linear thought process, it's structured in many places more like a pinwheel, where it hits the same subjects and themes over and over. So in reading the gospel out loud, the reader would speak verses 16 through 20 in chapter 1, and it would register for the hearer in their mind. But then in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, this same subject of calling would be revisited, and the hearer would have it further cemented and internalized. These sections that we're going to cover today are what are known as call narratives, the calling of disciples. Teaching it to you in this fashion is not to confuse you, but rather to help you understand the topic more fully. So today, the overall topic that we're going to look at is the call to follow Jesus. You can write that down. It's the title for today's teaching, the call to follow Jesus. And we're going to be looking at these two sections. We'll read through both of them. The call to follow Jesus. Let's go ahead and begin in chapter 1, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, 
the name Matthew is also used there, uh, as you'll see in chapter 3. So this is Levi or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. First thing that we see in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, is the subject of the call. The subject of the call. And the subject of the call is Jesus himself. The scene of this call in chapter 1 is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is the northmost substantial body of water in Israel. If you're looking at a map of Israel, it's circled there in the red, up in the northern part. And then this is a closer picture of it. It's also known as Lake Kinneret. That word in the Hebrew is associated with the idea of a harp. It's shaped kind of like a harp. And it's about eight miles wide and about 13 miles long. That's not very big, is it? I think uh, the biblical writers intended it, and sometimes we hear it when we read the Bible as these mammoth distances in these large places. And in reality, it's a very small amount of land. For example, this picture pretty much captures about 70% of where the Gospels occurred, right? Not very much land, 13 miles long. A small portion of the land, like I said, is where the vast majority of the Gospels occurred. And specifically, this event most likely happened in the northwest portion of the lake, a place known as the Cove of Tabga, known now as Ain Nur. It's a rocky shore made up of broken black, as, uh, uh, broken black basalt, but it has a warm mineral spring that draws schools of fish close to the shore, and still, even today, is a place where fishermen will fish from the shore. As they were fishing, doing their daily jobs, just like what you do every day, Jesus walks by and says to them, rendered in the English, follow me, right? Now, this isn't a typical game of Simon Says. In the Greek, uh, the words are very, very specific. There's actually three words here, dute, opiso, mu. A more wooden translation would be here, behind me, or follow behind me. It was a very pointed declaration that Jesus was calling them to be his disciples, not just his buddies, his disciples. Now, why would these men simply stop what they were doing and follow Jesus? We often romanticize this scene in our minds as if the disciples were young teenage girls and Jesus was the Beatles and they couldn't help but follow him, right? But let me share a few things to give you a little bit of context. Mark intended for, again, this to be very succinct and for it to seem like, wow, they didn't have to know anything about Jesus and they followed him, almost a blind faith. He intended to give that kind of a mentality. But even with that, there's some context that helps us understand discipleship. Let's remove a bit of the romanticism of this encounter, first of all. Remember that this was not the first time they had seen this man Jesus. The Apostle John gives us a bit more detail on this scene. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. 
Take a look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. It says, The next day again, John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, interesting, this was his cousin. He'd probably played up, uh, grown up playing with him on the foothills of, of Nazareth and, and of the Sea of Galilee, right? And yet he says, this is the Lamb of God. That would cause some eyebrows to raise, right? The two disciples heard him say this, and so they followed Jesus. Why? Because that's what John the baptizer's point was. I'm nothing. This is the guy I've been talking about. Go follow him. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Man, as we'll see, that's a huge question. That's a great question for you and I to ask. Were they seeking the good life? Were they seeking purpose? Were they seeking prosperity? Were they seeking even heaven, eternal retirement? What were they seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? There's no answer to it, which makes us ponder. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christos, the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, don't get stuck in the similarities or the differences of these accounts. Remember that to read the Gospels as ancient literature is to read them as they were intended. The main point is still the same. The occurrence of them meeting Jesus still happened. Most likely, there were two events here that occurred in, in some capacity. But the method and point of each writer was slightly different. So we're not reading them as police reports to find out the specificity, but rather reading them to find out what the author intended to communicate. And here John lets us know that these fishermen already had an understanding of Jesus as a disciple of John the Baptist. Now think about that for a second. You might think, wait a minute, Jesus was a disciple of someone? Yeah, that's why he went to get baptized by him. He wasn't probably the same level of disciple as some of these other men, but to get baptized by someone was to submit yourself to their teaching. And so in a sense, Jesus was a disciple of John the baptizer, but he was one that John had actually elevated above himself and proclaimed as the Messiah, so a little bit different, right? He was the chosen and sent one of the Lord. And that's why he said, I'm not fit to baptize you. What are you talking about? Now, they were not merely fanatics ready to follow after any old spiritual leader that came along, any spiritual leader that came across their Instagram feed or put out a new album. They were looking for a very specific leader. Notice what Jesus asks, what are you seeking? No answer is given. The reason is that the answer is assumed. They were seeking the kingdom of God come to earth. They were seeking the fulfillment of all of the promises to Israel that the prophets proclaimed. They were seeking the restoration of the people of Israel in covenantal relationship with the God that they served. They were seeking the kingdom of God. And that is why they followed John the Baptist. 
And now that is why they followed the one whom John the Baptist pointed to and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I want you to think the last time you heard of someone in their testimony or in their conversion story said, someone asked them, why do you, why do you want to follow Jesus? Because I seek the kingdom of God. That's not an answer you hear very much in Western society. What you hear is, because I know he loves me. Because I know his purpose and plan is for me in my life. Because I know he will give me eternal life. How often do we seek Jesus because we seek the kingdom of God, the reign of the creator? What are you seeking? We can look back at Mark 1 and realize that this is what they heard when they heard the call of Jesus. Come and follow as my disciples so that you might behold and be part of the kingdom. Dear church, is this what you are seeking in following Jesus? Are you seeking the glory of God and his kingdom come? I saw a sign this week at a church in town that super bummed me out. You guys know the reader boards or the little, like, you know, they put up the letters and everything. And I was super bummed because it said, the key to heaven was hung on a cross. Now, while this statement is a true statement, it speaks of why many come after Jesus. They think that Jesus will give them heaven when they die. And again, if we follow Christ, is that true? Yes, absolutely. But is that why we follow Jesus? Tell me how to get to heaven and I'll do whatever it is. Is that why we follow Jesus? We follow Jesus because in doing so, we get what? Jesus! Do the Sunday school answer, everybody. Go ahead. Jesus. We follow Jesus because we get Jesus, not because we get prosperity, not because we get a tax return, not because we get retirement, not because we get a golf for the rest of eternity in heaven. We follow Jesus because of? Jesus. We get Jesus. We get to be with our creator. You see, that's what was lost when sin came in the world, not, oh man, sin came and now I have to work and so I'm looking forward to eternal retirement. That's not why we follow Jesus. The effects of sin are distance from our creator. And therefore, Jesus brought us back into that relationship. Amen? Amen. And that's what we gain. We get to be with our creator, our redeemer, our high priest, our king, the best friend we could ever have. We get to be with our bridegroom as the bride, the church. You see, dear church, even though heaven is a side effect, of following Jesus. Heaven is not the goal. Relationship and fellowship with and worship of Christ as king is the goal. He is the subject. He is the object of our affection. The gospel of the kingdom of God orbits around Jesus, not around us. You see, why this is so interesting is because the typical rabbi call was to call a person to follow their view of the Torah. But in reality, most rabbis called their followers, their disciples, to submit to the Torah, not them. But Jesus is different. He says, follow me. Why? Because Jesus was the incarnate Torah. He was the incarnate law of God, the law of love and liberty. He was the incarnate king. He was everything. Jesus is the center of all of the kingdom of God. The subject of the call was to follow Jesus, not anything else. Now, let's take a look at the content of that call. 
the content of the call in chapter 1, starting in verse 16. And even in the the second section as well, is to leave all and follow Jesus. To leave all and follow Jesus. Man, contained within this call was a huge cost. But I think, again, we often romanticize this. We think, I need to be like the rich young ruler and give all and go become a missionary in another country. And if I don't do that, or if I don't go plant a church, man, I I really don't have much to give, do I? You know, I got to pay the bills. I got to do my life. You know, those are the real superheroes, the missionaries and the church planners. And that's kind of what I hear on a regular basis. I feel so guilty because I just can't sell everything. I must not be a very faithful Christian because if I were, I'd sell everything and go be a missionary. And we follow really good men and really good women who do that, but that doesn't mean that's the only thing. And if that's true for you, (laughs) if you're sitting here today going, no, that is a conviction, uh, let me just tell you, we as elders want to get behind you and support you and prepare you and send you. So if that's you, come talk to one of us. We would love to have you become a missionary in another country. We praise God for that. And to a certain extent, Jesus was calling the disciples here to engage in a three-year itinerant ministry with him. But let's take a look more closely, and we will actually see that what he's calling them to is actually far more costly than simply selling everything you have and moving to another country. Let's look at what it meant for these four, first four disciples. They were all fishermen. They were businessmen. And I think the view is that they were poor and had nothing, but I want you to take a second and think about this fact. Did Peter and Simon and Andrew, did they go home to their families at the end of a fishing day? Yeah, yeah, they didn't just disappear off the, off the paper. Did they have fights with their wives? Absolutely. Did they have to discipline their kids? Yes. After the three years of itinerant ministry, do you think they just went, see you later, family, I'm out, peace, I'm going to go do things? No, they still had a family, and they still had to make a living, just like Paul in tent making. We lift up these pictures in the Bible, and we idolize them as if they're all of life. And the reality is, is these are the high points that give us where to focus, but we have to fill in the gaps with an understanding that these are regular people who had regular lives. And they didn't just suddenly leave all of it and go. They did at times, but even Paul again, whenever he'd go someplace, he had to have a job. He had to have a daily monotonous life. Most of obedience, dear church, is found in being obedient in the miraculously mundane. We all want the high points of the retreats and the mission trips, but you know where Jesus is wondering if you'll truly be obedient? It's when you're sitting on your couch. It's when you're hanging out with your family. It's when you're serving your boss at your job. It's in the miraculously mundane. That's where obedience is found. And these were all fishermen, and I think that they weren't just these poor guys who suddenly left everything that they had, the two pence they had, and went. No, most likely these were actually middle-class businessmen who were actually doing pretty well. We know a few things about the fishing in that region of the time. First, we know that fish, not, not uh, red meat, was the major staple food in the Greco-Roman Empire. And fish from the Sea of Galilee were actually exported as far away as Alexandria and Egypt and Antioch and Syria. Galilean fishing was a strong business. And secondly, some historians believe that because it was such a big business, there was possibly a fishing cooperative that worked together to uh, contract with wealthier salesmen and middlemen to sell their product. 
Therefore, to be in business on the Sea of Galilee, you had to be somewhat shrewd. Third, we see that the Zebedee family, uh, Zebedee's family, could afford both a boat and an employee. And lastly, as we saw in our second section, there was enough business going on in this region that on the border of Galilee with the other regions, there was a tax collector, most likely two, sitting at the table, attempting to get their share out of the fishermen because fish had to be traded so quickly for freshness that they worked in money, not in bartering. And so there was a tax from both Herod Antipas as well as probably the Roman Empire. Now, why I bring this up is that, yes, each of these men was lowering the priority of their business. In the case of Levi, the tax collector at least, and possibly the four fishermen, following Jesus could have meant a major hit to their financial bottom line. But it didn't mean they got rid of everything. You even see Peter at the end of John going back and using the the gear that he still had to fish. People want to hyper-spiritualize that fact that, oh, he fell away because he went back to fishing. No, he had to make a living. He didn't give up. If you're a contractor, he didn't go, oh, I'm going to give up my hammer and all my equipment to follow Jesus. No, guess what? You still got to make a living. Unless God specifically told you you're going to get manna from heaven, I would say keep your gear, just prioritize it underneath Jesus. That's following Jesus, right? Following Jesus meant giving up a portion of their finances, yes. And that is definitely something that the church needs to hear and understand today. If you're a person who you think, oh, Jesus hands off my finances, I'm not doing that. The church is corrupt. You know, groups that, that uh, flow out of the church are corrupt. I'm, I'm going to hold all my money myself. Then uh, that's the first thing you got to give up, right? That's an easy one for you. You should give up a tribute to your king. But what if I said to you that it was even more costly than just the economic hit? You see, these disciples didn't sell everything in order to leave town. They didn't completely abandon their families. They didn't go to another locale right away. They did the even harder thing. They fundamentally turned their lives upside down right in their own hometown. I remember when I first started following Jesus passionately, I was a little bit uh, uh, confused in my theology, but I at least had some passion. So I can totally equate with Kanye, by the way. Um, (laughs) I had some passion, and so, you know, the 9-11 had hit, I'd come home, and I thought the tribulation was coming, and so I wrote this huge long paper to every single one of my drinking buddies in college, like all of them that I used to drink with, wrote this big long paper that said, hey, this is what's going on in the news, this is why it's, I was a good, you know, Calvary Chapel uh, charismatic, right, this is what's going on in the news, and this is why it's in the Bible, and this is how it all pairs together, you need to repent and follow Jesus, and if I could do it again, I'd wipe away the first five pages and leave the last three that gave the gospel message, right? But I remember getting one of the responses from one of them, right? Because these are people that knew me. One of them wrote back and said, don't drink the Kool-Aid. That's all he wrote, (laughs) right? Because he thought that I had bought into a cult and I was being crazy, right? It's harder sometimes to change your life right where you sit than it is to go and preach to total strangers, amen? That's the truth of it. Gosh, I don't know if I should become a member of this church because, man, I know that grandma and grandpa, they've never been members of a church and they think it's kind of crazy. So is that a good reason to not become a member of a church? No. You see, the reality is they fundamentally turned their lives upside down right in their own hometown, right in the circles of influence that they already knew. Can you imagine if you went to your coworkers, your friends and your family right here, right now that you know and said, hey, by the way, I got this chance to go with this homeless carpenter rabbi who thinks he's the son of God and the king of the kingdom of God, and I'm going to follow him around and tell people about him. 
even if that means my business suffers and my family thinks I'm crazy. How many of you would be like, yeah, that sounds like a really good thing to do? Not at all. You see, they didn't disappear from the people that knew them. They went back home and told those who most heavily scoffed, they said, we're followers of Jesus as king. As quickly as Mark 121, they went with him into cities just a few miles away where they were already known. One of the most incredible transformations of this fundamental reorganization of life is that fellowship within the kingdom overrode all else right where they sat. Remember that Levi was a tax collector and the four other disciples were fishermen and were pretty much assured that they knew each other. Why? Because Levi collected taxes on behalf of Herod Antipas on the business of the fishermen. So question for you businessmen out there, do you think there was any love lost between the four fishermen and Levi? Do you think they saw each other? You know, they're like, oh, we're about to get into the Jesus circle. Let's go huddle up, right? And they see four backs in Jesus, and they're like, oh, I sit down. And, and here's poor Levi looking at the four dudes he just totally put one over on, taking their taxes. And they look at him, and they look at Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, you got to be kidding me. This guy, this guy totally took my money the other day. But that overrode, that that fundamental allegiance to the king and his kingdom overrode all else in their life right where they sat in their normal everyday life. In Christ, they reorganized their social connections so that what was forbidden before was now overridden by the love of the kingdom. You see, following Jesus requires more than the simplistic or romantic notion of giving everything away for Jesus. It requires a fundamental change of perspective to have in mind the things of God, no matter how costly they are, rather than the things of man. It means to serve rather than to be served right where you sit. It requires a leaving behind of former allegiances and priorities so that Jesus is Lord of your life right where you sit. It requires freeing yourself from any barrier that keeps you from giving your life to follow Jesus. It is a reordering of social, financial, and familial priorities so that Jesus is Lord of all. And most often, this call is to occur right where you are. It's a different way to live in the here and now. In many cases, like I said, we are emboldened to preach in a foreign country because there is no social repercussions if we do. Man, going to Africa, yeah, I might lose my life to uh, a terrorist group, but as far as just simply preaching to people, they're all strangers. I'm going to leave in two weeks. But to preach here to the people that know me, that know my history, that know my sin, that know who I truly am, to preach to my very own biological family of origin, oh, that is the scariest thing ever. But does that mean I don't do it? The hardest thing in the world is to preach Jesus right in the same location you were in when he called you. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 7, and let's look at what Paul said on this topic. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 17. Tell me, 
Give me an amen when you're there. Paul says to the church at Corinth, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Then let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision, which I honestly don't know how you do that, but that's neither here nor there. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. All the men said, amen. Verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain in God, with God. The Corinthians were doing what happens with many passionate new believers. They were wanting to make drastic changes because they had become Christians. They wanted to change their sign of circumcision or not. They wanted to change their occupations and leave their unbelieving spouses or maybe even get married because they thought that these are the changes needed when following Jesus. That's all of chapter 7. But how does Paul respond? He says, be in relationship with God wherever you were when you were called. Now, if your occupation is sinful and against the kingdom of God, yes, you should probably change occupations. But his main point is, is the reality is that we need to change and reprioritize right where we sit. I'm always amazed at how many people come up to me and are like, man, Hans, I need a reference to go do this amazing mission and to go preach this. And I'm just going to say it here right now so that I get myself in big trouble. Um, I often think this, I don't see you do that here in this church. Why would I give you a reference to go do it in a foreign country? Now, I always do because I love you and I want you to open your eyes to the world, but the reality is, is do it here first. And then guess what? The other missions, they will get fed and, and you will find yourself even more able and capable to do those. Young people, if you want to serve Jesus, stop looking to YWAM to make you good Christians that can serve. Do it here first. And then if you go on the YWAM trip, you'll even be more capable, Right? Stop looking to external changes. Change right here, right now, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So often we look to external circumstances to make our walk stronger with Christ, but Christ says, no, seek me where you are at. Reorder your world right where you are. That shows true allegiance. Now, I want to be very careful here and very clear. Please do not hear me as saying being a missionary or going on a YWAM trip or any of that is bad. That, that's all the glory of God and the good of his kingdom. And I want to be very clear about that. But I'm trying to tell us as everyday believers, stop looking to those things. Start right here, right now. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean for you to reprioritize your relationships, your finances, your time, your family, so that your allegiance is to Jesus first and foremost? What does it mean for you to leave all and follow Jesus right where you are at? Do you have idols in your life that you need to leave behind right where you are at? Do you have relationships that you need to reprioritize so your allegiance goes to Jesus right where you're at? 
Do you have financial responsibilities that need to be reordered right where you are at? So often I find Christians who are like, man, when I make more money, it's all going to Jesus. How about you take the two pence you have and reorganize your budget so that the Lord gets the glory? What is the thing that you know you are most afraid to do for Jesus? The thing that might mean losing social standing or financial capability, but the thing that you know will bring glory to Christ. I want to challenge you to step into that this week. You could even write yourself a note right where you sit right now. This is what I need to be looking at as a hindrance that keeps me back from giving my life over to Christ in fullness. I want you to think about how you will step into that and challenge yourself this week. Because if you do, you will begin to see the fulfilling of the purpose of the call. You see, the purpose of the call is to become fishers of men and women. As we talked about last week, we can go around speaking the gospel as much as we want, and that is a good thing. But if we don't have a life that proclaims the gospel, you see, why Jesus was effective was because he worked first. You'll even see him in Mark going, hey, watch me. Don't say anything to anybody else. Don't proclaim anything yet. Just watch me. Watch my life. Look how I live the kingdom. And then eventually he's like, okay, now you can go say it. Right? We have to be gospel-driven people before we can be gospel-proclaiming people. Hans, are you saying I should wait until I get cleaned up? No. Have you given your life over to the king? And are you in a growth pattern? If so, praise God, proclaim it. But if you're not, you're going to do damage by proclaiming it. Because the purpose of our call is to become fishers of men and women. Jesus is very clear in his statement as to the purpose of his call. In following Jesus as his disciples, he will make them become fishers of men. The NIV has it as, I will make you fishers of men, but that word become is very important. It states that in following Jesus, there will be growth towards this eventual character change, that they will grow into the role. For many of us being young in this church, I want to encourage you, keep in endurance continually moving slowly but surely towards Jesus Christ. Don't be one of those people that's a flash-in-the-pan Christian, but slowly, every day, give more and more of your life over to Jesus Christ as you come under conviction. The book of Acts shows us this change, that these common men eventually would be used for amazing things as they would be sent throughout Samaria and Judea and the world to become fishers, seeking after men and women that would be caught and pulled into the kingdom of God. And painting the background for this phrase is the Old Testament image of fishing for men. This metaphor is used at least five times in the Old Testament, but it's used in different ways. The first is here in Amos 4.2. It says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. A couple of times in the Old Testament, this idea of men being caught in the dragnet of the Lord or hooked is a reference to the judgment they will face when standing before God. In other words, the background for what Jesus says is that the judgment and resurrection are coming. Which side will you land on? Secondly, in Jeremiah 16, it gives a different understanding. Here, the context is the restoration of Israel. It says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall be no longer said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But... 
Instead, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. There's this connotation that by building this team of fishermen, so to speak, Jesus has initiated the end of days where judgment will eventually come, resurrection will eventually come. And the question is, who do you follow? Who is your king? Where is your allegiance? Which side will you land on? The connotation is that the disciples, the beginning of the church, would be the ones to bring in this end of the age, leading toward the fullness of kingdom of God, and both the eternal covenant faithfulness to his people and judgment to those that are not. Well, Hans, it's been 2,000 years, really? Are we still in the end of days? Yes. These are the last days, just like it was the last days in the days of Jesus. But Hans, it's been so many generations. Guys, our life is but a breath. Don't even, as, as Seth prayed, whether Jesus comes back quickly or we die quickly, Jesus is coming quickly in your life. Who do you follow? Jesus is asking them to join him in the mission of rescuing some in the face of the coming judgment, to rescue them from the power of the kingdom of darkness. And dear church, this is the mission we are still engaged in. We don't outsource it to missionaries. Our church is named Mission for a reason. If you attend mission, what does that make you? A missionary. Amen. As we go to our places of work, as we hang out with our families this holiday season, as we go to our Little League games, as we go to Taekwondo class, as we go uh, do whatever in our community, as we engage with our neighbors, is this the mission that we find ourselves on? Or is this far from our mind? Is it relegated to going on the two-week trip to a foreign country? Or are we missionaries right here, right now? I love this picture of fishing for lost souls and bringing them towards Christ. There is an intentionality, a purpose, a focus. And dear brothers and sisters, I'm not asking you to go do drive-by evangelism with complete strangers. Again, that is almost easier. Hey, do you know Jesus? Let's talk, right? All of you introverts in here are like, no, that is not easier, right? And that, that's true. But what I am asking you is for purposeful praying for your circle of influence and the people in it that need to know Christ. Do you pray for them every day? Well, I've known Aunt Sally for 40 years and she's just never coming around. You should be praying for her more now. Well, I don't really want to get into it with my kid's Taekwondo instructor. You don't have to. You don't have to walk up and give them a tract. You need to invite them to church. You need to go hang out with them. It was so cool the other day. Uh, a bunch of us uh, from church were over at a birthday party for my kids and man, we got to pray with my kid's Taekwondo instructor, right? How are you doing evangelism? How are you stepping out in purposeful fishing for lost souls? Do you structure your interaction with non-believers in a way that you are able to show the heart of Jesus? Are you building relationship with people that are totally different from you, even to the extent of fishermen and tax collectors? The essential elements of discipleship is the relationship to the subject of the call, Jesus himself. Another essential element is an understanding of the content of the call, which is a total commitment to Jesus' cause. And the last essential element is an active pursuit of his same mission for which he came to this earth. 
Now, that's a lot, right? It's weighty, right? Hans, you're, you're telling me I'm a missionary? Yes, I am. Everyone in this room. That's weighty, isn't it? You might start to think maybe, maybe I'm not his disciple. Maybe I've been playing church. Maybe I've been playing Christianity. Am, am I even up to this task? I mean, I don't know theology. I don't know this. I don't know that. But this is where we need to look at the character of the called. And we'll see this back in Mark in that last section. Go back to Mark chapter 2 with me. And most commentators believe that the first part of what we read, verses 13 through 14, is actually wedged together with a second story that's actually separate, wasn't intended to be put together, but it made sense in the theme, verses 15 through 17. And what we see in it is the character of the called. Sick outcasts who know they need to be healed. That's the character of who's a missionary. Sick outcasts who know they need to be healed. Look with me again at that last section. Let's go ahead and read it. As Jesus reclined at table in his house, it's hard to figure out where this is, but the, most commentators agree that it's Jesus reclining uh, or maybe Levi reclining in Levi's house, but they're pretty assured it's Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Okay, so this means it's the disciples, and thus far there's not that many. So most likely the four fishermen are hanging out at the tax collector's house. And people are like, what? And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, because they couldn't get to Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So they probably pulled the good Jewish boy fisherman over and said, hey, why are you guys hanging out with these fools? Right? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this section, we get a glimpse into what Mark is trying to communicate to us about the citizens of the kingdom of God. We see the very clear statement that the called are people who realize they are sick and in need of healing, that they are sinners in need of forgiveness. Now, I want to be really clear here because this has come up in so many counseling sessions lately here and in my secular counseling. The gospel of God, dear church, is that we were created in the image of Jesus. We were created and God said, hey, look, it's good or bad. Good. Sometimes as Protestants, I've said this before, we want to go, I just stink, I'm terrible, and I need Jesus. And we let this develop into this identity of, oh man, I am just horrible. Oh my gosh, right? Well, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you were created in the image of God and you were good. Hans, are you teaching humanism and the innate goodness of man? Not anymore. That was then. And then sin crept in, which was us saying, God, get off the throne of my life. I want to follow myself. I want allegiance to myself. And then were we good or bad? Bad. So then we needed someone to come and not make us just a completely different animal, but to restore us back and give us the spirit so that we were no longer sinners, right? This is the gospel, restoration. And so as that, we realize that we are sick and in need of healing. We have to realize that we are sinners in need of forgiveness because we have sinned against a righteous and holy God. The Messiah was promised to a people who knew they were in need of salvation. 
The Israelites were not the most powerful or most prominent people in the world. In the book of Deuteronomy, we realize that this is why God chose them, because they were the most minuscule and weak. They were the slaves, the broken, the outcast, the unclean. They were not men and women who said, look at me and all I can do for the kingdom of God. I'm the greatest artist that's ever existed on God's earth. They weren't doing that. That was more akin to the statement of arrogant kings under judgment from God than it was the statement of a true disciple. On the other end of the spectrum, though, it's heartbreaking to me when a person believes that they need to be cleaned up in order for Jesus or his people to accept them. This plays out all the time in this church in the way we think about ourselves. We wrongly think that the key to fitting in, the key to connecting, is that we have to improve so that people will like us more, that we have to get our stuff together so that I can actually fit into my community group or my discipleship group. Oh boy, I've got all these issues in my life. I don't know if anyone's going to like me. I don't know if I can attend community group because what if they find out all my dirt? They'll figure out that I'm a sick outcast in need of a savior. Can you imagine? In a church. That's the whole point of the church, dear church. You see, the way to get heavily connected is to finally admit that you are that, and that you're in need of other sick outcasts that gather together under the loving gaze of Jesus Christ to bring us healing. It requires us to admit that we are broken, that we crave friendship and love, to admit that we need brothers and sisters around us. It requires vulnerability because we follow a Savior that was so vulnerable that he gave his life for us on the cross. It begins by admitting that you need Jesus. He came to the earth for this very reason, to give the sick outcasts in need of a Savior hope that the kingdom of God had a place for them and for us. He died on the cross in the place of the sick outcast, you and me, to open up a way for us to enter into that kingdom. He rose again three days later to prove that his kingdom will never be shaken and he will never be removed from the throne. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven to sit enthroned as the king over his church, awaiting the day he will return. And he is coming back. Dear brother and sister, dear visitor, are you broken and in need of a great physician? Are you an outcast in need of inclusion? Are you a sinner in need of salvation? Are you broken mentally and emotionally to the point that you need the healing safety of a church of other people who will admit the same thing and walk together towards health? When you decide to follow Jesus, you are admitting these things and asking for him to minister to you, for his church to minister to you. And this is the baseline of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. If you have it all together, I would suggest you need not apply. Paul, in writing to Timothy, showed that he had this mentality. He said in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost or chief. And Paul says elsewhere, I was the best of the Pharisees, the Pharisee of the Pharisee. But notice that this wasn't a narcissistic debasing of self, a woe is me statement. It was intended as a celebratory gratitude that gives glory to God for his amazing grace to call a man like Paul. If anyone had a claim on righteousness, it was Paul. But Jesus came to save us who are broken, sinners in need of a Savior. 
And if we understand this, we will respond to the call in a similar way to the disciples we see today. Not only do we see a passionate and immediate response to follow Jesus, but we see a celebration of inclusion into the kingdom. Some commentators see in this feast that Levi is putting on a context that implies that he's arranged a banquet to celebrate his call to discipleship. That's what this was, was a party because he had become a disciple of Jesus. And the wording that the author uses to describe the situation, reclining at table, was a phrase to describe a banquet, not the typical Hebrew dinner of where they would be sitting up together. It's possibly even looking forward to the eventual banquet when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. And this celebration caused men who were unlikely to gather together because of social pressures to gather and rejoice together because they'd been called. Rejoicing at their inclusion in the kingdom of God outweighed any negative consequences that could come. Something that seemed totally crazy to the religious leaders looking on. I wonder, as we go to the table of communion today, if we need to refocus our minds and hearts on the topic of communion, and even on the topic of how we do community group potlucks. I'm so excited that our South and West groups kind of kicked off this last week, and we've got the smaller groups, more intimate settings. But why do we go to those? And what's our attitude as we go to them? Is it a, I got to go to this because it's one thing I do as a church, or is it a celebration? As we go to the table of communion, are we collectively celebrating that we have been called to be disciples of Jesus? What an honor that none of us deserve, and yet we've been called. Let's rejoice in the honor as we go to the table of communion to look back at the death of Jesus on our behalf and look forward to the return of our King when we can celebrate with Him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's why we go to the table of communion. And as we finish today and as we think about our call, I want to ask those of you who may not know Jesus, have you answered His call? Maybe you've had an apathetic response to His call. And today you want to choose to truly follow his call as Jesus says, here, behind me, be my disciple. If that's you, there's going to be elders in the back during the second set of worship that you can go back and talk to and pray with, and they can help you enter into that walk as a disciple. For the rest of us, I want us to look at our lives and ask these questions about, have we reordered our lives right where we sit to be disciples, passionate disciples of Jesus? so that not only with our mouth can we proclaim the gospel, but with our life. And as we finish, I want to revisit the reading that Brian gave us earlier. And perhaps now, after we have looked at the call of discipleship in depth, you might hear Paul's words to the church at Philippi with stronger emphasis. And as we listen, I don't want you to open your Bibles, I just want you to listen. Let the Spirit convict us of if we need to reorient our lives so that we too might live as true disciples of Jesus called to become fishers of the lost souls that surround us. Let me read to you now from Philippians 3, 7. Go ahead and close up your Bibles and your notebooks and just sit and listen for a moment. Philippians 3, 7 through 4, 1. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, it is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself." Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You see, the power that made him king, dear church, is the power that gives him the ability to save us. Who are you following? Because it's important who you follow. Who are you following? And if you have followed Jesus, why? Did you understand that it meant surrendering your life to him when you raised your hand that one time and said that prayer? Did you understand that it meant joining his mission to seek and save the lost? Did you understand that it meant submitting your life to him in every capacity? If not, today is the day to do so. And he welcomes you with open arms. He is not frustrated with you that you didn't know the fullness of the gospel. He is not frustrated with you that to this point, he has not been the fullness of your king. Today, he welcomes you with open arms and he says, come, follow me. 